A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. In the Gospel narratives, the outright failure of Jesus' disciples to grasp the teaching of their Master is pretty hard to miss. We hear it over and over again that despite Jesus' explanations and exhortations, his students show by the way they respond that they just don't get it. Peter, James, and John, the ones identified by Paul in Galatians as so-called pillars of the church in Jerusalem, are often singled out for correction in these stories. It is they who are on the receiving end of the weightiest of the hard lessons. But as we shall see, although it is initiated by their behavior, the instruction offered by Jesus as a corrective applies to everyone without exception. To use contemporary jargon, we might say that Jesus uses his disciples' lack of understanding as a teachable moment and it is primarily Peter, James, and John who are, in true scriptural fashion, held up as the examples not to follow. Their correction provides the light of instruction for all who are within earshot. During Lent in the Orthodox Church, this failure of the disciples to understand the teaching of Jesus is hammered into our ears. In the Lenten lectionary, all of the Sunday Gospels except for that of the first week, are taken from Mark. Three of them, the readings of the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays, center around Jesus' three predictions of his passion. Immediately after Jesus' third prediction of his passion in Mark 10, verses 33 and 34, we hear that James and John respond by asking him for a personal favor. Coming right on the heels of what Jesus had just taught them about his death, the question they ask is shocking and inappropriate. Let's hear the text of Mark 10, 35 through 40. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. In this passage, the response of the sons of Zebedee to Jesus' teaching on the purpose of his going to Jerusalem to suffer betrayal, persecution, and death 
is to ask him to do for them whatever they want. And what they ask is to be given a privileged place at Jesus' second coming. Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. As hearers of the story, we might be tempted to say to James and John, are you kidding me right now? It's as if they didn't hear what Jesus had just told them only moments earlier. Jesus responds by telling them that they don't know what they are asking. He then asks them if they are able to endure the persecution of the cross and even to taste death, to be baptized and to drink the cup, as he phrases it, as he is about to do. The two seem unfazed by this, and their response is to affirm, yes, we are able. But it's not likely that James and John do understand what they are asking, and they don't seem to grasp the gravity of Jesus' teaching on the cross, even after hearing it for what is now the third time. Their request sounds like that of petulant children who really don't know better. Yeah, yeah, enough about the persecution and death. Let's get to what really matters. Can we get a place of honor in the victory parade? What's troublesome in this passage is that even though the Twelve are being taught the hard-to-accept teaching, what James and John asks shows that they are only willing to accept it on their own terms, which de facto means that they are not really willing to accept it. In the verse that immediately precedes this third prediction of Jesus' passion, verse 32, we hear the following. Now they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. That expression, on the road, odo in Greek means on or in the way, as in following a particular path. In this case, that path is to walk in perfect accordance with the will of God, the path or the way of righteousness. It is with this meaning that Jesus uses the same expression in Matthew chapter 21 when he says to the Pharisees, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. In Mark 10, Jesus is going before them as in leading them in the way on the road to Jerusalem to face persecution, the cross, and death. And they were amazed. Amazement or astonishment from the Greek word thamvano is a response to something we don't understand or have difficulty accepting. It's the same word used to describe the women who went to Jesus' tomb to anoint him when they found the stone already rolled away and a messenger sitting on it later in the story. And significantly, there they are instructed not to be amazed. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we hear that it is James and John, along with Peter, to the exclusion of the others, who accompany Jesus at the raising of Jairus' daughter. They are also with him at the mountain where he is transfigured before them. We might say the function of these three being singled out in this way is to make them a stand-in for the Jerusalemite church. In Mark chapter 8, the first prediction of Jesus' passion is sandwiched between Peter's confession of him as the Christ and Jesus' harsh rebuke to Peter after he rejects Jesus' teaching on the necessity of the cross. 
Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That's verse 33. The text makes a point here to tell us that Jesus says these words to Peter, but only after he had turned around and looked at his disciples. The specificity of the phrasing here tells us that although it is Peter who is being singled out for instruction, Jesus' rebuke applies to any and all of his disciples. Then, beginning with verse 34, we hear the corrective in the form of a teaching, the addressees of which now expanded to include more than just Peter and the eleven. When he had called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus' second prediction of his passion in Mark chapter 9 is sandwiched between two episodes which highlight shortcomings on the part of the disciples. Preceding the second teaching, it is their inability to cast out the deaf and dumb spirit of a Gentile man's son, to which Jesus responds with exasperation, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And immediately following that, it is their dispute among themselves about who would be the greatest. And they were engaged in this dispute while they were on the road. In other words, supposedly following their teacher in walking in a manner pleasing to God, that is, in accordance with his will. It's a seemingly minor detail, but the addition that they were on the road amplifies the fact that the meat of the teaching Jesus is trying to impart to them isn't getting through. Right before Jesus questions them about their dispute, we hear in verse 32 regarding his being betrayed, killed, and raised up after three days, but they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Their failure to grasp the teaching is exacerbated by their fear of finding out what it really means. So in the narrative of Mark, we hear this series of failures on the part of Jesus' disciples, each of them centered around his prediction of his passion, and in each, Jesus takes them as opportunities to offer the teaching even more emphatically. In chapter 8, it is Peter who is held up as the example. Anyone who stands in the way of God's will, in this case, even the unacceptable prospect of crucifixion and death, is a hindrance, a Satan, to God's faithful servant, his Christ, because he stands in the way of him faithfully doing God's will. In chapter 9, Jesus addresses the dispute as to who is the greatest by taking the position as teacher and teaching them, all of them, the same lesson. In verse 35, we hear, And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This lesson, here addressed to the twelve, is expanded and refined a little bit later after the third prediction in chapter 10, 
and after James and John, the sons of Zebedee, asked Jesus for the favor of privilege. But here, in chapter 10, before Jesus gives the teaching, we hear, And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. In a literary sense, the text is clever in its reference to the other disciples as the ten. It could have easily worded it, the others, but the reference to ten calls to mind in the ears of the hearer, more specifically, the Gentiles. The way Mark phrases this scenario forces us to hear a distinction among Jesus' twelve between the sons of Zebedee, representative of Jerusalem, and the ten, representative of the nations. And the issue is brought on by the sense of entitlement of the Jerusalemites over and against the Gentiles. And again, Jesus presents the teaching to all of them, refining and expanding the explanation we heard in the previous chapter for the purpose of helping his disciples better understand. Beginning with verse 42, we hear, But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' example of those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles corroborates my understanding of this text as an attempt to correct the perceived inequity among the Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. Yet it shall not be so among you, he says, applying the teaching to all of them. In the verse which immediately precedes Jesus' teaching, we hear that the ten began to be greatly displeased with James and John. When someone is offended by the sense of entitlement of someone else, they themselves think they deserve the same. So the ten here aren't presented as the ones who were wronged, but rather as much in need of correction as the sons of Zebedee. That's why we hear that Jesus called them to himself and then addressed all of them with the one teaching. Anyone who would follow me on the road in the way must do as I do, And I seek to do only the will of my Father, even when the road leads to Jerusalem, where persecution and death await. This is why anyone who would be great among you shall be your servant. In the way Jesus is going, his Father's will is the only thing that matters. And scripturally speaking, no one is allowed to be great in the presence of God, least of all his beloved Son, the one identified as such by the evangelist in the first verses of his gospel and by the voice of God himself at his baptism and transfiguration, the one who is himself moving forward on the road in the way of perfect obedience, obedience to the point of death, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, even the death of the cross. If he is going to face death, in perfect obedience to the will of God, shouldn't the ones following him be prepared for the same? And yet they seek to be considered great. Again, scripturally speaking, greatness is viewed from the perspective of God alone and based solely on obedience to his will, which is expressed in his law. 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in chapter 5 of Matthew, in his recapitulation of the Mosaic law given to his disciples from a mountain, and which teaching he commands them to teach all nations at the end of that same gospel. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Upon hearing the hard-to-swallow truth of such an unacceptable teaching, the special favor asked of Jesus by James and John seems even more incredulous. Your teacher is advancing toward Jerusalem to be spit upon, persecuted, and nailed to a cross, and you, his students, want a fast pass to the head of the class? Their request to be exceptional shows that James and John didn't grasp the teaching, but even the details they propose in the question reveal another aspect of flawed understanding. Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. When we consider that Matthew, the gospel which immediately precedes Mark in the scriptural canon, depicts this very matter, the Son of Man coming in his glory, and that in the parable in Matthew chapter 25, we hear in verses 32 and 33, all the nations will be gathered together before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep in his right hand, but the goats on the left. One possible response to the request of James and John or to anyone for that matter who hadn't read Matthew might be, Okay, guys, fine. Now, which one of you wants to be on the left? This concludes episode 14 of A Light to the Nations. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to meeting again soon.